Hello, and welcome to this, the podcast of Archimedes, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. What we do in this podcast, I'm sure many of you will be well aware. We have a case or two that's been taken through in an evidence-based way, that is, a clinical scenario has generated a question that's then got people to structure it neatly and send themselves off to search the medical literature for an answer. They've got those potential papers and then they've appraised them, weighed them for their strengths and weaknesses and brought that answer all together and then summarised it in a clinically actionable form that we like to call the clinical bottom lines. We've got a case like that and we've also got a little nugget of thinking about the practice or the understanding of evidence-based practice and we tend to start with that and this issue is no exception. Now, if you're lucky enough to have read Terry Pratchett's Men at Arms, you will almost certainly remember one of the best descriptions of the mechanics of socioeconomic inequity that has ever been delivered. It mostly concerns footwear, and I'm encouraging you right now to pause the podcast. Just just stop. Pa- pa- pause, pause it. You, you're still going, okay. Well, 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 I'm just assuming then that you do actually remember all about Captain Vimes and what he said about boots. And if that's not ringing bells, then pause it now. No, no, actually pause. Look, just just go and find it and come back again in a minute. OK, so I, I believe that you know about it. And, and now you're back. You'll be thinking, how the heck does that play into evidence based practice? And particularly if you're, like me, working in a healthcare system where access to treatment isn't directly dependent on an ability to pay for assessment, for care and for medication for the vast majority of conditions. But even in that setting, Vimes's socioeconomic inequities, they probably still do play a part. Consider as we talked about, where the clinical dilemma that generated the question in the first place came from. Particularly, think about those questions that were generated because of what someone, the parent or carer, said. Those may be more likely to have come from educated, empowered or richer families they've got greater resource to spend upon their child's care. That resource may be time, education, access, the way they engage with an educated elite. And that is what the majority of physicians and surgeons are when you put us in the realms of everybody else. The way that those sorts of families engage with us may be more acceptable. And in that way, they may be more likely to be listened to. They may have already sought information from the sorts of resources that we would look at around alternatives that then gives you a a seedling to start your evidence-based quest. And that is likely to be seeking out more expensive but longer-lasting or more effective treatments. And if that brings a better outcome for their child then that's brilliant and I've nothing against that. But can you ensure that the children whose parents aren't the same, but the child has the same condition, 
can also access that newer, that different or that nuanced treatment. If not, those kids are going to end up with the same $10 boots they were always getting and be back again through the emergency room next year. Improving equity of care has to be part of what we do in paediatrics. And that means that we have to consider it when we're thinking in an evidence-based and evidence-seeking way too. Now, our case this time is sent to us by Alphonsus Yip and Ashley Rees at the Department of Paediatrics at the West Hertfordshire Teaching Hospital at Watford in the UK. They have a case of a 14-year-old with allergic rhinitis, hay fever, with sneezing, runny nose, itching. On the testing, it shows that he's sensitised to grass, to tree and to birch pollen. His symptoms go throughout the spring and summer and they put him off at school. He's got the full whack of medical therapies, oral antihistamine, nasal spray, eye drops, but it still remains symptomatic and his mum really wants a better treatment. Now she's heard that if you eat a local honey, then it improves the symptoms of hay fever and asks for your advice on this. So you, being triggered in an evidence-based way, wonder whether eating locally sourced, unpasteurised honey really can reduce the symptoms of allergic rhinitis or potentially even be a cure. So that was the scenario that triggered the question that then went out to do a literature search running across Medline, Embase and Sinal databases using a mixture of terms around honey, around ingestion or consumption, and then a whole bunch of terms around hay fever and allergic rhinitis. This got 43 potential articles, of which three of them were suitable, but none directly focused on children. These were a series of randomised trials, the largest having 61 patients aged between 8 and 79 years old, and the smallest only 36 patients between 20 and 72. And in these cases, what they randomised was to some form of honey and a control of something else, be it a sweet tasting uh, corn syrup as placebo or a a non-national honey or no honey whatsoever. When people looked at this, They used a variety of sort of symptom scores, some of them validated and some of them not, looked at the additional use of rescue medications, which is always a sensible thing in this setting where you're you're thinking about the outcome, but, but it could be modified by what sort of treatment is being given in addition and, and tracked these across the different groups. There's, there's a sort of an interesting setting on here because mostly these are given in addition to the usual rather than instead of the usual. In the adult populations it did look like the honey arm were a little less by way of the symptoms than the other groups though potentially within the realm of a lack of blinding because of the corn flavoured syrup not really tasting like honey, but maybe, maybe real. But the really disadvantageous size of this is the enormous doses of honey that were required in order to get that. The 
the, the dose of one gram of honey per kilo body weight is 50 to 80 grams of sugar in a grown-up. So when you look at the sort of UK recommended daily amount of sugar, you're at 30 grams for a grown-up. So medicinally, you're taking two to three times the amount of that. And the one with a lower amount of honey in it, the one that would be within the sort of realms of acceptable sugar ingestion, there was no difference between those two. So their summary in total was that whilst there was a little bit of data to suggest that large doses of honey might reduce the symptom scores in adult patients, the adverse consequence of taking that much sugar was likely to offset any sorts of advantages. And so overall, as a therapeutic manoeuvre, the ingestion of local honey was not recommended by this group for allergic rhinitis control. So, you see now that Archimedes can range outside of neonates beyond the intensive care and not always including things that pharmacologists have control over. As we seek the questions that people are asking, we're getting broader and broader types of evidence being required to answer them. And that's right. That's what we should be doing in evidence-based practice. So when you're coming up with a clinical dilemma where the science and the evidence can help you, you too can try and turn that into an Archimedes, send it in, and then get it on the podcast in months to come. All of our contacts are on the web pages. And if you've liked this podcast, please share it with a friend, particularly if your friend has allergic rhinitis or is one of those people that likes to make things equitable in the world. Leave a review on your various podcatchers and we will speak to you next month. <laughs>